Uh, we are launching a new series this morning entitled The Other Kings. Many of you have heard of kings like King Saul or King David or King Solomon. They were the first three kings of Israel. Uh, they were the only ones to rule over a united kingdom of Israel. After King Solomon, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Both of these kingdoms ended up having 19 kings. Judah also had one queen. Uh, in Judah, only eight of the rulers were considered good. In other words, only eight of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The others were bad kings. In other words, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, in the northern kingdom, it was even worse. In the northern kingdom of Israel, none of the kings were considered good. All of the northern kingdom's kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we're not as familiar with these 39 of the rulers, the other kings, as we are calling them. So in this series, we're going to get to know some of them, and we're going to see what we can learn about faith from them. But there is a second meaning behind this title, the other kings. Most of these 39 rulers were bad kings. They compromised what God wanted for the nation. They did not treat God as the true king of Israel. Likewise, Jesus is the king of kings. And we do not always treat Jesus as the king of kings. We compromise our faith in Jesus with other kings in our lives. One of our directives here at TFRC is transformed lives, where we live visibly different lives because of our faith in Jesus. And as we look at how the kings of Israel and Judah served other gods, we want to ask ourselves if any sin is ruling over us. What other kings do we serve? And we may have to adjust how we live so our lives reflect Jesus, the king of kings. Scripture for this morning is 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 4 to 15. Uh, you can look it up in your Bibles. 1 Kings is about a third of the way into the Old Testament. It's right after 1 and 2 Samuel. You can also look up 1 Kings 21, verses 4 to 15 on your phones. The king that we are looking at this morning is King Ahab. Our scripture reader is Andy Kendall. So Andy, if you can make your way on up to the podium. As he does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We um, stand because we believe this is the word of God. And we read from the center of the room to remind us that scriptures be central in our lives. It is the primary lens for how we are to live. And so Andy, whenever you're ready, please read 1 Kings 21, verses 4 to 15. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, 
proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But see two scoundrels opposite of him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed them in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. Andy, thank you very much. You may be seated. Uh, my freshman year of high school, I ran cross country. In high school, I ran cross country for one year, just one. Um, I've never been the strongest or fastest person, yet when it comes to endurance, I've always done pretty good, relatively speaking. Uh, like in June, I did a two-week study trip in Israel. We hiked five to seven miles each day in temperatures, um, you know, either high 80s or in, even in the 90s, carrying three liters of water in our backpacks. I'm 51 years old, I hardly did any training, and I didn't struggle with the hikes at all. Um, it was fine. Endurance is something that I have been pretty good at. Uh, just don't ask me to run a marathon or anything like that. Uh, I ran cross country my freshman year of high school, and when we would practice, it was common to run with someone. Uh, and in practice, I would try to keep up with those who were faster than me. But there was one upperclassman who always wanted me to run with him. The problem was he was a slow runner. And so whenever I ran with him in practice, it really didn't help me get any better. And yet I often felt obligated to run with him because no one else did. And as I reflected on that over the years, I realized that my willingness to run with him kept me from performing better. He was a bad influence on my training. If I would have just ran with the faster people, I would have improved much more. But I'm a relational person, but sometimes our relationships hurt us. And that was the case big time with King Ahab and Jezebel. In this morning's scripture, Jezebel is the primary actor. She's the one who gets rid of Naboth so that King Ahab gets the vineyard. And Ahab, he married her for political reasons, but it was a reckless relationship. And before we see how much of a bad influence she was, let's learn more about our king of the day, King Ahab. King Ahab, he was king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And remember, none of the kings of the northern kingdom were good. All of them did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But Ahab, he did more evil than any king before him. Israel had seven kings before Ahab, and they all were pretty bad kings. So for Ahab to be worse than all the previous seven kind of tells you a little bit about his bad character. He is known best for his confrontation with the prophet Elijah. Many of you are familiar with the prophet Elijah. Because Ahab established Baal worship in Israel, and we're going to talk more about that later, Elijah made the rain stop. And Elijah has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, 
where they both set up sacrifices. And it was decided that the God who consumed their sacrifice by fire, well, that is the one true God. Well, Baal does not respond to the prophets of Baal. But the Lord does answer with fire to Elijah. And the people declare, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And the prophets of Baal are killed. And then Elijah goes to King Ahab and he basically says, now it can rain. The passage that we read this morning takes place a few chapters after Elijah on Mount Carmel. A man named Naboth has a vineyard. And Ahab wants the vineyard and makes really what is a fair offer. But for Naboth, his vineyard is more than a vineyard. It's his part of the inheritance of the promised land. It is his gift from God. He would never think of selling it. And so we read King Ahab's response in verse 4 of chapter 21, where it says, So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Sullen and angry. Sullen and angry. Those two words in the original Hebrew only appear one other time in the Old Testament, and that's in the previous chapter, 1 Kings chapter 20. And the only time those words are used is to talk about King Ahab. Those words are just for King Ahab, sullen and angry. In 1 Kings chapter 20, the king of Aram attacks Samaria, which is King Ahab's capital. And God delivers Ahab from the king of Aram, which is amazing because King Ahab is the worst king of Israel so far, and God still has the grace to deliver him from a foreign king. So God delivers Ahab from the king of Aram. However, King Ahab spares his life, spares the king of Aram, which he was not supposed to do. And so God condemns King Ahab for his disobedience. And chapter 20 ends with King Ahab being sullen and angry. And that Hebrew word for sullen means resentful, can even mean stubborn. It's like a child who gets called out for doing something wrong, and they don't like being corrected, and so what do the children do? They pout. And that's what King Ahab is doing. He was called out for being in the wrong, and so he pouted. And he has the same reaction to Naboth. Naboth won't sell because his vineyard is a part of his inheritance from the Lord. And King Ahab knows that Naboth is in the right, but he doesn't like it. So he pouts in his resentment. Now, just a quick thought. None of us like being corrected. I don't like it. You don't like it. Yet how we respond to the correction that we don't like, those moments are pivotal moments in our lives. Can we find the humility to receive the correction we don't like. It isn't easy, and it can take some time to accept it. We may have to process our emotions and our anger as we think about the correction someone gives us. But being able to accept correction when it's warranted, even if we don't like it, those 
are fork-in-the-road moments of life. It is critical to take the right path, no matter how painful it might be. But King Ahab, he pouts, and now enters Jezebel, going to verse 5. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why are you pouting? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. Now, who's in charge here? <laughs> king Ahab or Jezebel? Jezebel's in charge. And she's in charge because she can get what King Ahab wants. For her, King Ahab should get whatever he wants. He's the king. If he wants the vineyard, he should have the vineyard. Ahab is pouting, and Jezebel says, I'll show you how a king should act. And so she writes letters in King Ahab's name. That's a very important detail. It's also a very important detail that she puts King Ahab's seal on the letters. The letters are in his name with his seal. And then she sends them to the elders and nobles in Naboth city. King Ahab has given complete control to Jezebel because he knows she will get him what he wants. And who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidonians. Ahab married her because he thought it would be a smart political move to do so. Now Jezebel's father's name was Ethbaal. Ethbaal means literally with Baal. So if your father's name means with Baal, well then you were raised in a household with a strong commitment to whoever this Baal guy is. Who was Baal? Baal was the major deity of the Canaanites who lived in the land before the Israelites. He was the primary god of fertility. And you worshipped him if you wanted his favor. If you wanted the land to be fertile, you worship Baal. If you wanted the herds to be fertile, you worship Baal. If women wanted to be fertile, you worship Baal. And the worship of Baal always involves sacrifice. You would sacrifice something to earn the favor of Baal. But you never really knew how much of a sacrifice you needed to make to get his favor. And so eventually you would up the ante and sacrifice more and more and more to the point that Baal worship would include child sacrifice. Baal worship was an abomination. And Jezebel was a major proponent of it. And she used her influence and power to kill off the prophets of the Lord. She saw the worship of the Lord as a threat to Baal. And so she systematically had the prophets of the Lord killed. You can read about that in 1 Kings 18. 
She also had on the payroll, on King Ahab's payroll, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah was a mother goddess in Canaanite worship. She was the consort to Baal. Baal worship and Asherah worship went together. Jezebel was a true believer in Baal. And Jezebel's goal was to eliminate the worship of the Lord and replace it with worship to Baal and Asherah. And so when King Ahab thought it was a good idea to marry her, it was a reckless move. It was only going to end badly for him. And so when it comes to Naboth's vineyard, look at what Jezebel does. Going to verse 9. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Now, what is probably going on here? What's going on with this day of fasting? There was probably some kind of calamity happening in or around Naboth's city. Maybe it was a drought. Maybe they had a bad crop year. Maybe a plague had hit some of the herds. But something bad has happened. And the purpose of declaring a fast was to discern what the cause of whatever the calamity might have been. And this was not an uncommon practice to do. And Jezebel goes on. Proclaim a day of fasting, she says. Seat Naboth in a prominent place. But seat, in verse 10, two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. Now, two scoundrels are people just willing to give false testimony. But why does she want two scoundrels? Why two? Why not just one scoundrel? The reason that she wants two scoundrels is because Jezebel knows the law of the Lord. And she knows that the law of the Lord says that it takes the testimony of two witnesses for someone to be condemned. So because she knows that, she needs two scoundrels. And what are the two scoundrels supposed to say? Well, that Naboth has cursed God and the king. Why make that the charge? If you're going to falsely accuse Naboth of something, why make that the false accusation? Once again, it's because Jezebel knows the law of the Lord, and she knows that the punishment for cursing God is being stoned to death. Jezebel is a schemer, and what she is scheming, what she is doing, is she manipulates the law of the Lord against the innocent. Jezebel uses the law that God gave the Israelites to have Naboth killed so that King Ahab can have his vineyard. The law of the Lord was intended to protect the innocent, and she uses it to kill the innocent. Reading the rest of the passage, going to verse 11. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. 
Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. Jezebel was bad news. Ahab's relationship with her was reckless. Under King Ahab's authority, Jezebel manipulates God's law to accomplish something evil. The death of an innocent man who simply wanted to honor what God had given him. Which brings me to another quick point. Be careful how you interpret and apply the word of God. It is easy for us to look at scripture and see it as a bunch of do's and don'ts and simply try to follow the do's and don'ts. God is more interested than just what we do. God is interested in our hearts. Remember what Jesus said about murder. If you hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. Remember what Jesus said about adultery. If you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. God isn't just looking at our actions. God is looking at our hearts. From a strict legal perspective, Jezebel didn't do anything wrong. From a strict legal perspective, Jezebel did nothing wrong. She didn't commit the murder. She didn't lie. The letters that were sent, in, who, in whose name were they sent? Her name? No, no. They were sent in King Ahab's name, with King Ahab's seal. If Jezebel would have been brought up on charges in a court of law, she would easily be declared not guilty. Brothers and sisters, if we treat the Bible from a strict legal perspective and simply tra treat it as a list of do's and don'ts, there is a lot of evil we can accomplish and claim innocence. We look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We need to examine our hearts, not just our actions. For Ahab, his desires were more important than what was right. His reckless relationship with Jezebel just made it easier to do what was wrong. Ahab had other kings in his life. And it's good for us to ask, do we have other kings? Who are our other kings? Jesus said in Luke 16, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. Interestingly enough, the name Baal literally means master. We may not worship Baal, 
We may not sacrifice our children to Baal, but we can still have other masters and we can still sacrifice a lot for them. In Luke 16, Jesus talks about money being a potential other master, but there are tons of things that can serve as our master. Throughout history, the church has identified what it calls the seven deadly sins. Now, what I like about the seven deadly sins is that they cover a multitude of things that can become other kings for us. And the seven deadly sins are deadly for at least two reasons. One is because they have the power to become masters of our lives. And the second reason they're so deadly is that they're really common. They are everywhere. So I'm going to share the list with you. And I'm not going to give you so much a formal definition of each of the seven deadly sins as much as maybe the deceitful message that is so easy to believe sometimes that's behind each of them. And remember, reckless relationships are either those people or things that are encouraging us to believe these messages. And every one of the seven deadly sins and the message I'm going to attach to them, they are everywhere in our culture and world. Like Jezebel, there are lots of things encouraging us to serve other kings. The first one is pride. And the message of pride is simply, I am king. I'm better than everyone else. I'm on top. Now, do we hear this message in our culture? Like everywhere we go, we hear it's all about you. Do you have any relationships that encourage you in your pride. Envy tells us, I should have what they have. Do you hear this message anywhere in our culture? Like every commercial that you're ever exposed to, this is the message. Do you have any relationships that encourage you to be envious? Wrath is uncontrolled anger, rage, or hatred. Uh, do we experience this in our culture anywhere? Uh, the news, its number one goal is to make us angry about something. Do you have any relationships that encourage you in your anger? Sloth, the message behind that, ah, you don't need to work that hard. Do we hear that in our culture? Like convenience, convenience, convenience? Do you have any relationships encouraging you to be slothful? Greed is when enough isn't enough. Is that message in our culture? Again, every commercial is meant to breed discontent. Do you have any relationships encouraging you to be greedy? Gluttony, overconsumption is king. Do we have that in our culture anywhere? Like, I cannot go to a restaurant and finish all the food that they put in front of me. Do you have any relationships encouraging you to overconsume? Lust is sexual fulfillment is king. Is this anywhere in our culture? <laughs> like our sexuality has become our identity. Pornography is a $12 billion a year industry in the United States alone. Do you have any relationships encouraging you in your lust? Which of these seven is a king for you? 
Which of these is the other king? And who or what is a negative influence for you to serve that other king? Who or what makes that other king easier to serve? Sort of serves as a catalyst like Jezebel. Now look, it's easy to blame the world for sin. But our sin doesn't come from the outside world. That's not what the Bible says. Our sin comes from inside of us. James 1 says each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This was King Ahab's problem. King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. He didn't care that Naboth cherished it as God's gift to him. He wanted it. And his reckless relationship with Jezebel just made happen what he wanted to have happen. His relationship with Jezebel gives us insight into the kind of person that King Ahab was. Look, our relationships, the people that we like to hang out with, the kind of situations that we like to find ourselves in, tell us a lot about us. Look around at your relationships. Who are the people you enjoy being around? What kind of people are they? And I'm not asking you to be overly judgmental. Just give kind of an honest assessment. Because the people you enjoy being around gives us great insight about what's going inside of us. After I pray, we're going to have a time of worship. And I want to encourage you to use this time to just do a heart check or use this time to do a relationship check. Confess to God the other kings in your life. It's okay to confess them. God already knows you have them. Use this time to just recommit your heart to Jesus, the one and only King of Kings. Please pray with me. And Lord, we again come before you thankful for your goodness and grace and mercy and patience. And Lord, I would ask that you would soften our hearts, even if it's just for these next few moments, and give us eyes to see the other kings in our lives who rule over us. And Lord, as we confess those things, may your spirit come, cleanse our hearts, and Lord, renew a right spirit within each of us. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the true King of Kings, we pray. Amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.